We're going to continue in our series, The Ideal Family. And today's sermon is called, How Do You Raise a G-Rated Family in an R-Rated World? In other words, how do you stay godly in an ungodly world? How do you do that? Well, I'm going to try to illustrate something to you today before we begin, because I believe that the American culture has really changed the American family. The American culture has really changed the American family. And we're going to look at two pictures that have been drawn by two different illustrators in two different times. One illustrator, you, most of you in this room, know, his name is Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell caught or captured the life of America in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. We're going to look at him. And then we're going to look at a, another illustrator. His name is C.F. Payne. And he caught the life in America in the 80s, 90s, into this present time. Here's some of the pictures. And we're looking at how the family has been changed by its culture. First of all, we have a picture of two, two soldiers. Definitely sons, but could be fathers or husbands. The other is a woman. Definitely a daughter, but she could be a wife or a mother. But they're now in the military together. Next picture. We have a picture of husband and wife or two adults out with their friends. Now the picture, of course, on your left is Norman Rockwell's. And on, again, on the right is C.F. Payne. And now we have a picture of two adults out with their friends, but they're on their phones with their friends. Next picture. We have a picture of Thanksgiving. One is cooked and the other is takeout. <laughs> Next picture. We have the picture of the first date. Here we have a, a two innocent young kids out apparently going to the prom or homecoming. And then you have the other two who met online, and it's interesting, they are their first kiss out in public. Next is we have a picture of the wedding day. Enough is said there. The wedding day. Next is we have the picture of teenagers doing homework. One is very focused and very simple, and the other one is very complex and multitasking. It's safe to say that the American culture has definitely changed the American family. But you know, I was out with some teenagers years ago, and I sat down and I began to talk to them about their family situation. Let me sum up their responses to me. There were those who lived with mom and dad, a number of them lived with their mothers, and some lived with their fathers. And others lived with either one. They didn't live with either one. They were living with their grandparents, they were living with their uncle, their aunt, or they were foster children. And as we continued to talk and go deeper, they talked about the fact that they, some of them didn't know either their mom and dad. They'd never known them, never met them. Some talked about living with their father, didn't never, I mean, I'm sorry, didn't know their mother. And others talked about the fact that they had never met their dad. Do you know in America, they tell me, that one out of three children in America are not living with their father. We're living in a time of unprecedented fatherlessness in America. That's why Urban Impact Foundation has taken on this dad's conference. In, on June 7th, we will be doing a dad's conference again in Pittsburgh. And I would encourage you as men 
to get your young men, the old men to come together because our culture is changing. And to be a grandfather and a father, a man in this particular culture, it's not easy to navigate. And we're gathering those men together to help you be the best father that God can possibly enable you to be. So I encourage you to come June 7th. But what I heard that day when I was listening to those teenagers, I heard these words way too often. And those words were divorce and separation, abandonment and abuse. And as I listened to them speak, I realized that, sad to say, but those responses are more typical today They're more norm than I've ever heard or ever seen in any other decade that I've been alive. You and I are living in a period of unprecedented historical change in the family. Unprecedented. You know, years ago in the 80s, there was a slogan that went out politically, and it said this, as the family goes, so goes the nation. That was the slogan, and that was the great debate in the 80s about whose values will the American people hold on to. And the great debate was whether or not we were going to continue in the Judeo-Christian ethic. In other words, the Ten Commandments. Are the Ten Commandments really going to be the values of the Americans, or are the Americans going to grasp onto another ideology? And by the way, we lost that battle. Let me ask you this question. I'll never forget, on It was either Time Magazine or Newsweek. On there it said in the front cover, whose values? Today, 20, 30 years later, let me ask you this question. If I was asking you to stand and quote the Ten Commandments, could you? Matter of fact, let me ask a different question. When's the last time you heard a series on the Ten Commandments? Let me read to you something that a renowned Harvard sociologist and historian, Carl Zimmerman, in his book, Family and Civilization. This is a renowned Harvard sociologist and historian. In his book, Family Family and Civilization, he studied the disintegration of various cultures throughout history. His findings were surprising as well as remarkable. Zimmerman discovered that the decline of a culture was directly related to the decline of a family, of family life within those cultures. In other words, he would agree, as the family goes, so goes the nation. He identified eight specific patterns of domestic behavior that typified the downward spiral of each culture he studied. And these are the eight common characteristics of cultures that failed. Number one, marriage loses its sacredness. It is frequently broken by divorce. Two, the traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost. Three, feministic movements abound. Four, there is a noticeable increase in public disrespect for parents and authority in general. Number five, There is a dramatic and constant acceleration of juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion. Six, people in traditional marriages begin to refuse to live up to their family responsibilities. Seven, there is a noticeable growing desire for an acceptance of adultery. Number eight, there is an increased interest in and an increased spread of sexual perversions and sex-related crimes. 
Zimmerman's findings would indicate that the United States is in serious trouble. Serious trouble. Zimmerman, what's remarkable is that book was written in 1947. In 1947. So if we are living in a time where our culture and our country is at great risk... How then shall we live? How shall we raise our children to be G-rated in an R-rated world? How do you do that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to tell you that in 2 Timothy, he's going to give us some great principles that if we will hold on to these and we will put these into practice, we have a great chance of raising our kids and our families godly in an ungodly world. Let's look first of all at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And it says this. This is Timothy, I mean... Paul writing to Timothy, and he says this, but mark this, meaning, Timothy, this is important. This is important. Mark this down. There will be terrible times in the last days. I want to unpack those two phrases, last days and terrible times. Let's look, first of all, at last days. That, that phrase is used in the New Testament often. And when it's used most of the time, it's referring to a time period. An entire period of time. And that entire period of time is in between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. The entire period of time between the ascension and the return of Christ is considered the last days in the New Testament. Let me try to help you understand ascension for a minute because some of you might not know where that's found or even what that is. So let's look at the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You remember when Jesus said this? He said... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outer parts of the world. But then he says, or the Bible says in verse 9, after he said this, meaning Jesus, after he had given the mission statement to the church, and the mission statement of the church is that we take the gospel, that we be his witnesses in our communities, in our cities, in our nation, in our world. That's why at Christ Church we call ourselves, our mission statement is to take, if you will, the gospel to the whole world. Is the idea that comes right from here because this is the mission of the church. This is why we exist. That's why we're left on the planet, to go and make disciples of all people, of all nations, to be his witnesses right here and right now in 2013. But as he makes this statement to the church, it says, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who came, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you you have seen him go into heaven. In other words, right there is the ascension. The ascension is Jesus leaving the earth and going back to heaven. But then it goes on and it says that he will return again. In between that moment that he leaves until he comes back again is called in the Bible the last days. 
Now, there is a great debate on whether or not it started then or it started when, the G- when Jesus was resurrected. And there are those who believe that from the resurrection until the rapture of the church is called the last days. I am not here to debate that, but I'm going to say this. We are in the last days because Jesus Christ has not returned and the church has not been raptured. Amen? So we are in the last days, but what I'm saying is this, or what the Bible's saying, is that the church was in the last days in the 1400s, in the 1500s, and we today, in 2013, are in the last days. But there's another way that those, that term, that phrase is used in the New Testament. Last days can also mean, not, in, not talking just about the entire time period, but it also can be talking about the last days, months, or events before Jesus Christ returns. It can be talking about those last days, those last events, those last months when Jesus returns. So both illustrations, both phrases are used to describe two different things. But then Paul takes that phrase, now that we understand that, and he goes on and he talks about terrible times. That gives us some great insight in what he's trying to say. The word times there is not referring to chronological time. It's talking about seasons, epics. Notice it says not time, but times. In other words, you're going to have seasons. What kind of seasons? Terrible seasons. That word terrible is only used one other time other than in our passage. It's found in Matthew 8, 28. And there it's describing something that's happening that's demonic, that's dangerous, and that is violent. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here now is he's saying in those days and those seasons of spiritual testing, there will be very intense, violent, dangerous, demonic seasons of spiritual testings throughout those decades, those centuries, until Christ returns. But what he's saying to us is that those seasons will continue to pick up intensity and they will be longer and more consistent as the time comes when Jesus will return. And he's talking kind of like this. He's saying, like, it will be like a woman who is pregnant. And as the time gets closer to her baby being born, they will have contractions. And those contractions will pick up. They'll become more intense. And as those times get more and more intense, you'll know that that baby is coming. In other words, when you see those terrible times coming closer and closer, and they get more times of of trouble than you get peace, you know that Christ is on his way. Now hear me. No one knows the time or the date, though, that Jesus is coming. Just a couple of years ago, we had people putting on billboards talking about that they knew when Jesus was going to come. When anybody ever tells you that they know the day that Jesus is coming, you need to run from those people. Those people are false teachers. Never get sucked up in that. Why do we say that? A number of passages, but since we're in the book of Acts for a moment, let me tell you when. This is what Jesus said to his disciples because they were saying, hey, when you're coming back, He said this, listen, Acts chapter 1 verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. The only one who knows this time is the Father. No man's ever going to know this, everybody. Write that down. Because there'll be false teachers trying to come and tell you, the end, the world's coming to end tomorrow. That's not going to happen. They don't know. 
But when you see the seasons and they continue to pick up and you see war, you see wars and famines and, and earthquakes and all these things going on, no peace, no peace, no peace, and you see that consistently coming, yeah, that's like telling us that it's, it's on its way. We're getting closer. But we're already in the last days, everyone. Tomorrow we'll be closer than we are today. We're there. So what do we do? This is what the Apostle Paul says to us because he's being not only in the present talking to Timothy, but he's also talking to us in the future. He's being prophetic here. And he's saying this, in those days you will see this happening. You will see people's behavior change. And the kinds of people that will be in that day will be like this, verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than, the lover, than lovers of God. Five times the Apostle Paul uses the word lovers. And he's saying that in those days, people will not be lovers of God or of goodness, but they will be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, and lovers of money. Sound familiar? You think we're in those days? I just gave you a contrast of the 40s and the 50s. 60, 70 years later, now we're in this world. We're at this time. Could you imagine if Jesus Christ does not return another 60 years, what it will be like in America? It said that people will not be lovers of God. They will not be lovers of goodness. They will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. And there will be terrible times. Here's what we need to understand is that if this is what we're in now and where we're headed and this is going to happen, how then shall we live? What's hard for me to to really grasp onto is this, that the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy that's not only going to happen in the world, but that same kind of behavior is going to be right inside the church. In other words, the church will look no different than the world. That the same kind of behavior you see out there in the world, you're going to find right in the church. That's why he says in verse 5, he says this, in those days, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Verse 7, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. He's saying that will be just like the Pharisees and the scribes. They will never, they'll be having a form of godliness, but they will deny the truth. They denied Jesus. And he's saying to them, listen, in those days, Timothy, know that right now that's going to happen, and it will happen in the future. You know, i got to say this to you, that there are per- certain places that I've gone, they've asked me to come preach at a certain church, and then they've got a hold of the fact that I preach the gospel, and they've not allowed me to go to that particular church or that particular service because they don't want the gospel being preached there. They will talk about justice, they will call- talk about social justice, they'll talk about going out and helping people, but if you talk about sin, you talk about repentance, you talk about the gospel, they sit and talk, elders sitting down and saying, should we have Ed Glover come? Because he's going to talk about sin, and he's going to talk about Jesus Christ, and that we need to come to know him. Hear me on this one. On December 1st, right here in this sanctuary, on December 1st, right here, just before the Christmas season starts, 
I am going to be right back in this sanctuary and I am going to preach the gospel right here at this place, in this church, in this sanctuary. And I'm going to encourage you to go get your friends, your families, your people that you love and you care for and that you pray and you bring them back here to this church on December 1st and I am going to preach the gospel. I'm going to talk to them about how God loves them, died on the cross, was raised again from the dead and how they can know for certain that they have eternal life. Amen? Amen. I'm going to be here December 1st. You do your praying. You do your talking. You do everything you can to bring those people into this place and we're going to preach the gospel and we're going to see people come to know Jesus Christ that day. Amen? Amen. Can you believe that with me? I mean it. Can you believe that with me? This morning, I'm going to ask you to do something. If you really are going to do that, if you're really going to believe in that, I want you to stand up. I want you to show God that you mean business. You're standing up. By standing up, you're saying, I believe in the gospel, and I am going to do everything I can to make sure that people are in this place that day. I'm going to pray. I'm going to believe God. We're going to see God do some great things in this place. Our mission is to reach the world for Jesus Christ. That is the mission of this church, amen? And that's who we are. We're out here to counter the culture, not go with it. We're going to be out here talking about the love of God. And as we walk and talk the love of God, people will ask us for the reason of our hope, and we will be able to tell them that we know Jesus and you can be set free. That's who we are, people. That's the mission that God has given each and every one of us. That's the church. That's what we should be, need to be, and always be. We need to be people who make disciples, who make disciples that go out and reach the world for Jesus Christ. We're not going to lay down and lay down and let the world roll over us. We're going to occupy, do everything we can to stand up for Jesus Christ in this time, in this generation, because God has raised us up in this moment. We're not in the 1400s. We're right now in 2013, and we're alive, and because we're alive, there's hope, there's the gospel, and there's the opportunity for people to come know Jesus Christ as their Savior. You get about his business. I'll be here, God willing, and we're going to see some things happen. Amen? Give hands to God for that one. Now take a seat. That was some preaching, by the way. Here we go. You ready? How do you do this? How do you get it done? Here's how you get it done. I love it because here we find in the, in the very book in which we're studying, we find principles that we can put into practice to help us raise our families to be G-rated in an R-rated world. You ready? Number one, we've already talked about, Paul said to Timothy, he said in those days, the people's hearts towards God, the love for God will grow cold. They will not love God any longer. Jesus said, this, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said that you are to, first commandment, you are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and might. You're to love God. In order for you to keep your heart burning for God and not allowing it to become cold towards the God and the things of God, you've got to keep God first in your life. The number one thing you need to do is you need to be a family who keeps God first in your lives, first in your finances, first in your interests, first in your relationships, first in your time. He needs to be first in the Ten Commandments that says you cannot have any other God. You only can have one. I'll never forget my father-in-law sitting me down before I married his daughter, Tammy, and he said, Ed, what's your priorities in life? 
And I hemmed and hawed, and he looked at me and he said, Ed, I've been in ministry 38 years, and I've asked that hundreds of times, and nobody's ever been able to tell me, so I'll tell you what. I'm going to tell you my priorities, and if you like them, you can adopt them, okay? I said, sure, tell me them. He said, my first priority, number one priority, is my relationship with God. Second, my relationship with my wife. Third, my relationship with my children. Fourth, my relationship to work in my church. And fifth, my relationship to myself in the area of leisure time. And he said this, if you keep those priorities like that, you keep them in order. You don't take them out of order. You keep that sequence. He said, your life won't be perfect, but it'll work. But the moment you take one of those out of sequence, you take leisure time, put it above your kids. You put your children or kids above God or work above it all. You do anything like that, all of a sudden you'll find your life, your marriage, your family starting to unravel. You know what I found? I found he was absolutely dead on. We've got to be a people who keep God first. Second, we not only need to be people who are God, who are people who keep God first, but we also need to be people of the book, of the book. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. You know what they told me? They told me that today in America, children and youth are spending 53 hours a week looking at or listening to some type of media. Technology's become their job. Parents, I've got to ask you this question. How much time are you really spending in the Word? Where in your life, in your week or your day, are you prioritizing being in the Word? When do you prioritize a time that your family sits down, where you study the Word, where you talk about the Word, where you pray together? Where do you do that? Hear me now, if that's true, if it's 53 hours in the world listening and watching all of what they have to say and you don't make it a priority anywhere, hear what, hear what Romans says to us. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, do not any longer be conformed to, the, to this world, but what? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The battlefield, my friend, is for your mind and the mind of your children and your grandchildren. That's the battlefield. That's the battleground. The Bible also says this. It says, what a man thinks they become. You sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap a destiny. It all begins in your mind. That's where the battle is, that's where the war is, and the battle is for your mind and the mind of your children. I need to say this to you, that there was a grandfather out with a grandchild. He was an Indian, a chief. And he was talking about this battle. Telling his grandson, there's a great battle going on in you. It's like two wolves. One's good and one's bad. And the grandchild finally looked at him and said, Grandpa, who wins? He says, the one you feed. The one you feed. If the world has your children and your grandchildren 53 hours a week, whoever has the mind owns them. Owns them. You need to be in the word of God. For you need to know the truth so when false teachers come and start to tell things that are not true, you'll know the truth. And the truth, so what? Set you free. You don't know the truth. And it says in the Bible, in those days, even the elect are deceived. 
We have a lot of things going on, a lot of teachings going on, a lot of stuff on the internet. And if you're not in that word and you are not taking responsibility, my friend, you need to do it today and don't wait one more minute. You've got to be people of the word of God. Number three, you also takes us to being, you need to be the spiritual leaders of your home. It says this in 2 Timothy 1.5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. That doesn't give us men the responsibility of kind of shucking our responsibility and giving it to the women. That's not a verse for that. Apparently the man was not there and they had to pick it up. In other words, we as men need to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. We need to be. You can't shuck that off, guys, to your wives. You've got to be the spiritual leader. Wives and grandparents, we need to do everything we can to be spiritual leaders. I love what John Maxwell says to us about being a spiritual leader in our home. As a father, as a mother, as grandparents, this is what he says. Your children, your grandchildren, deserve to hear you pray earnestly and often. They deserve to hear you talk to them about the things of God. They deserve to hear you share your faith with other people. Deserve to see you put God first in your financial giving. Deserve to watch you live a consistent Christian life. Deserve to go with you to visit the unfortunate. Deserve to hear you say good things about other Christians. Deserve to be exposed to people and experiences that will enhance their spiritual growth. Your children and grandchildren deserve to see you love your spouse until death do you part. And they deserve to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. We need to be the spiritual leaders of our homes, which leads us to number four. In order to do that, you need to spend time with your kids. You know, I'll never forget this young man that came forward one day at an altar call. And I looked at him, I said, son, what brought you here? And he said, my father died. I said, well, how'd that happen? It was a boat accident, he said. The boat flipped over and we were going down the current and my father grabbed me and threw me up on a rock and saved my life, but the current took him and he lost his. And I looked at that young boy and I said, man, your father really loved you. He said, yeah, that's what I'm so confused about. I said, what are you confused about? He said, I don't know why, but I don't understand why my father was willing to die for me but he wasn't willing to live for me. And he proceeded to tell me how his father was a ghost. He was never around. He wasn't around at his birthdays. He was never around at Little Leagues. He was never around at all. He was a successful business person, but he wasn't a father. James Dobson says this. He says, kids spell love, T-I-M-E. If your kids, your grandchildren, are spending 53 hours a week and you're not around, the world owns them, my friend. you got to spend time. Last thing is that we need to be people on a mission. People on a mission. This is what it says in, in the scriptures in our book. It talks about... T- 
Paul's saying to Timothy, you need to be an evangelist. You need to do the work of an evangelist. And then over in 2 Timothy 4, 2, it says this. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. He doesn't say run to the hills and hide and separate yourselves and become like the omnish. He says, no, you engage, you occupy, you preach the word so that people are not deceived. You go out and do the work of an evangelist so that people can come to know Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to do on December 1st right here in this sanctuary. We're going to do the work of an evangelist right in this place, but we need to continue to be on mission, and this is what I believe. I believe we can be G-rated in an R-rated world if we'll stay on mission, if we will spend time with our kids, if we'll be the spiritual leaders of our homes, if we'll stay in the book in the word of God, and we keep God first, I believe it can happen, I believe it can be done, and I believe it will be done, and I pray that for all of you. God bless you, and thank you so much. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get the opportunity right now to have communion. What a wonderful way of putting into practice what we believe. To coming to this table, remembering all that you've done for us, and remembering those who still yet are yet to come to this table. May we be about your work this week and these weeks to come. May you do great things on December 1st. May we see many people come to know Jesus that day. But Lord, in between, we pray for our children and for our families and that, Lord, that we would do everything that you've said for us to do. You give us courage. You give us the strength. You enable us to do what's right. And for we ask these things together today for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen.